On Racing HQ, Monday's Experts, studying the form of racing's characters. Monday's Experts, he'd have always got the good oil, pity you can't put a bet on at the finish of a race. Welcome back to Racing HQ on this uh, Monday. Great to have your company time now for Monday's Expert. And when I was caught off the bench for uh, Dave Stanley, who's taking a spell, and I was asked to find a guest for Monday's Expert, I went through a few names, and I happened to cross paths with this gentleman at Goulburn Races on Friday. And I asked the question, had he been on Monday's Expert before? And I was surprised he had not. So I took the opportunity upon myself to... Uh, to get him on the show. A very good morning, Rob Price. Morning, Anthony. How are you, mate? Really good. Great to have you on the show. Uh, I was surprised Dave hadn't had you on before, particularly given the success over the last couple of years of Count Rupi and Jamea, which we'll get to throughout the show. But I wanted to uh, just learn a little bit more about your background and how you got started in the industry. Uh, I know you, you didn't necessarily start out as a horse trainer full-time, but did you always grow up on the South Coast, and, and what was your first memory of a, of a horse or the races? Oh, well, I, I grew up on the Shoalhaven River, and um, we had a racetrack right next to our property, and I used to toy around and ride a bit of track work for one of the local trainers, Freddie Thomason. Uh, I'd become indentured to Fred and rode all my trials, but uh, weight got the better of me. Also, I was ambitious in regards to trying to... Um, buy a block of land and things like that. I was always ambitious in that area. So I give up the, uh, the jockey idea and um, still road work in the interim, but become a bricklayer. I um, laid bricks for 19 years. Uh, didn't really get back into the horses till the mid-80s, where I hobby trained a couple in my backyard and also continued in the building industry. I was very fortunate. I kicked off with a couple of real nice little horses that, uh, one races, I was, I was thinking this is pretty easy, this caper. But um, when them ones go for a spell and you bring in the slow ones, you soon work out it's not as easy as it looks. Mm. So just in those early days, you, you did all your trials as an uh, apprentice jockey, but you never actually rode in, in races. How far did you get? Yeah, I got right to race day and I just couldn't um, see myself. Them days, the limit was 45 kilos. And, you know, you've got to be really light to ride them sort of weights, especially when you're kicking off, you're going to have, Light gear, which is it's all a challenge, let alone trying to sit on in light gear. And um, yeah, I wasn't going to make it. I really, you know, the uh, maybe these days I wouldn't, mm. you know, with a, with a 54 limit, maybe these days I'd have been fine, but them days no. Must so have been. that's what changed me. But you know, we hobby on the we're on the dairy farm, we hobby trained a couple, and mm. I used to ride their work whether I wanted to or not. But I've always enjoyed riding horses, and I've always loved the animal itself. And how, how did you go about getting, I imagine when you went back into the building industry, did you sort of train part-time and, and do both until the horses took over full-time? And what were the, like how, what was the process in terms of getting your trainer's license back in those days? Yeah, well, it, it was. You had to, um, you know, be interviewed and you had to show, well, I've been in the industry as a stable hand mm. and strapper right through. I wanted to keep my finger in the pie. And uh, my parents hobby trained, or I'd own a trained horse, every now and then, like we like you do on a dairy farm. But, um, yeah, like I, uh, my father-in-law, I was good mates with his sons at school. I'd quite often drop into Regal Lodge and ride a bit of track work on a Saturday morning or something, or, or um, a rainy day when we're not laying bricks, I'd drop in a lay, ride a few horses. Um, always had my finger in the pie, and um, he was a great educator, KJ. You know, they, you know, if you're doing something wrong, he'd soon tell you what it was like black and white. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was a good schooling and a good grounding, and I, I was around a lot of good horse people 
So you can pretty well say I've been around horses my whole life. You know, um, we almost sage we were riding to school, but we've been around them pretty much all our lives. Was there anything in particular during that sort of 19-year break um, when you were working as a tradesman, anything in particular that made you go get your licence and, and, and do it more permanently? Oh, not really. I always, I always wanted to. At the same time, I wanted to own my home before I did it. Okay. So I know there's plenty of pitfalls in this industry. And it's certainly a, it's a tough gig to start off without nothing behind you. Mm. And they were quite, you know, in them days, the stewards were quite um, adamant that you had, you know, money behind you or some form of assets behind you before you went training, yep. which was a wise thing. I don't know whether it's strict these days, but certainly they wanted an asset behind you. And I was always ambitious. Like, I didn't go full-time training until I paid off my mortgage. Wow. Uh, you know, and it's a it's an unusual story on its own. I paid our mortgage off, you know, in my late 30s, which, you know, people would be jealous and envious of that these days. Mm. But I'm um, probably guilty of overworking, but um, them days are behind me now, and I'm enjoying training, um, you know, but the work's still just as hard. Well, that doesn't surprise me, uh, you being a hard worker. I know that very well. And did you did you sort of go down that path, like you say you paid off your, your home and, and had no mortgage in, in your late 30s? Was that because you knew that it was going to be somewhat of a risk going into training horses full-time? It, it could have been a bit volatile for you from a financial point of view, so you didn't want to have that burden? 100%, yeah. 100%. Like, you know, all of a sudden you do something like that, and you you know you're not making ends meet. You could soon you'd soon evaporate. Mm. I was um we I certainly set myself a good grounding. Um, started off with two in the backyard. I progressed from two stables to four stables. I ended up with five horses in my backyard in Berry. Um, had a lot of success. Had a stakes mare in my backyard. You know, like the third season I was racing. You know, we won um, numerous races at Kemmler Grange. Yeah, and it, it all seemed too easy, but it wasn't really. Mm. When was your first winner, Rob? 1989. Makes me sound old, doesn't it? But I, I had my first winner in 1989. I won a maiden. Kimla Grange, Craig Carmody rode him, drew barrier 16 over the 1400. I can still remember it like it was yesterday. Um, yeah, then it was only like a month after that I trained my first Kimla Grange double wow. with four horses in the backyard. So we started off on a good note. One horse that, that got you got you going, I did some research yesterday, and I think one horse that probably got you going more so than any other was, was Red Ivory, um, mid-90s. I think you, you purchased it for around $4,000, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, went on to win over 200000 and we're talking mid-90s. That'd be, you'd, you could at least triple that these days. Really got you going, Red Ivory, from what I can gather. Certainly did. She, she took a hell of a lot of breaking in. She was a feisty mare, um, also feisty filly, but she um, she certainly took us places. She was a terrible traveller. She was only small. I had a group of four people in her, and um, one of them was the late Bruce Thomas. He owned hotels in Sydney, and I think we ran third at Kemmler Grange at a second start, and we got $300, and mm. Bruce said, look, if that's all you're getting prize money, I'm out. So we subsequently, her next start was at Rose Hill, and she started a 100 to 1, and she won a two-year-old on a Saturday, beating the, the slipper favourite. And it, wow. was, um, it was a great thrill as a young trainer. And to be honest with you, Anthony, I was only making it up as I go. You know, <laughs> I really was. And I, I, think, I think she would have been much better if I knew what I was doing. But um, she qualified for a Melbourne Cup. She got galloped on in the last race start before going to Melbourne. And uh, probably wouldn't have been successful down there because she um, didn't appreciate heavy tracks. At the same time, she won a, uh, a straight eight cup. 
She won a Canterbury Cup. She's placed in numerous Group 3 races. Probably should have won two Canterbury Cups. So I, um, I gave the jockey wrong instructions, and I still blame myself. But, um, yeah, she was a lovely mare and um, certainly had a bit of fun with her. She won as a two-year-old at 1,300 at Rose Hill, a third start, as you said, 100 to 1. And then she went up to 2,400 metres, won a couple of stakes races. Pretty rare to do these days. Not often you'd see one win at uh, those shorter trips as a two-year-old and then race through as an older horse over longer distances. She was obviously pretty tough and resilient. Extremely tough, extremely resilient, and had a, had a great sprint. Like I probably, yeah. like I say, if I had it a day, she probably would have been virgin on Group 1. Wow. I just, you know, I... Uh, she had an incredible turn of foot. She could roll off a 33 at the drop of a hat. Yeah. You know, most people didn't want to work with her when I took her somewhere looking for a buddy to work with because um, she'd blaze them. And them days, I didn't really, like I said before, I didn't have a rule in on training horses. And I wasn't saying I was leaving it on the track. But um, these days, I wouldn't have worked near as hard as I as I did them days. She wasn't a bad producer as well from a, uh, as a mare. Uh, you raced the progeny, uh, Red Ivory and... Uh, well, Red Ivory's progeny, rather, Ivory Pegasus, was a good horse and, and one-way ticket, so they were both pretty good money spinners for you. Too right. We went to pretty average stands. Uh, the only good cover we got was I got a stay-in share with Coolmore, and that was for Archie Pegasus, and she's an extremely talented mare, Ivory Pegasus. Raced with no luck, drew extremely wide gates, run into some real heavy tracks, but she was ultimately consistent right through that three-year-old season, you know, just behind the big prize money all the time, and... Yeah, we had a lot of fun with her. I, I think she won one at Randwick one day, Corey Brown rode, and it was just scintillating the, the way she finished. Was, um, yeah, she was a very talented filly. How did you go in those, those early days, just going back not too far, but around that sort of red ivory stage? How did you go in those early days acquiring, uh, acquiring owners? Was it, was it a little while to set up a strong client base? It was, but at the same time, um, you know, it's an old adage, you're only as good as your last winner. Mm. And we were fortunate enough to be winning races in the right places. I think it could be a tough gig if you kicked off and you had the wrong horses. And um, I've always said it to everyone: I'm a lucky, I'm a lucky person. Mm. I'm a lucky person, and I feel like that. And I, you know, they say the harder you work, the luckier you get. But um, I've got a beautiful wife and a lovely family um, to go with it. One thing you perhaps don't get enough credit for, and I'm, I'm talking more these days, is mentoring the younger riders than the apprentices. Recently, you've had Brock, Brock Ryan, Matty Waters. You've got Olivia Chambers with you now. Is that something you enjoy, being a mentor to the younger kids coming into the industry? 100%. Probably more so, Lou. Luke gets mm. a bit of a kick out of teaching the kids. He's a little bit more hardcore than me, and that's probably better for the kids because um, I think the generation that's coming through um, a little bit softer, and that's not their fault. It's um, it's to do Society, with the parenting. Maybe. Like we mm. we're all yeah we're all getting softer on our on our children, but you know you've got to adjust. Whereas um, yeah, Luke he keeps them on that straight and narrow, and doesn't make you know make sure that uh, you know they maintain that great work ethic, which is um extremely important if you want to be successful. You must be really proud of Luke as well. I mean, he trained on his own for a few years there. He took a horse called Man of Choice to a Victoria Derby, ran third in a Group One very early on in. In his career, now that you guys have joined partnership the last few years, uh, obviously works well together, but you must be super proud of what Luke achieved on his own there before doing the partnership. Oh, 100%. You know, and, and it's a good sign of endurance because he's had his fair share of injuries. Hmm. He rode at the top level as a jockey. Um, you, know, he's, you know, it's not easy getting out of bed seven days a week. And um, I, don't wanna, I don't wish to push that on any of my children, 
but he's obviously he um, loves the industry, loves the animal, and as everyone in my family do. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it. That's probably um, the key ingredient to being successful too is to love the animal because you spend a lot of time with it. Yeah. How do you guys split it up in terms of the stable? I noticed you've got about 80 horses on your books. Is it typically split right down the middle between Kembler and the farm? No, none of, I'm going to the farm right now. I'm in the truck, but no, no work on the farm now. It's all at Kembler Grain. Okay. As been the last couple of years. Um, the farm's been redeveloped now and it'll be covered in houses. So, um, yeah, not much life left in the farm in regards to even spelling horses, but I've got about another six weeks of adjustment left there before they start digging soil. So I'll utilise it right up till the day they close the farm. But um, yeah, it's all at Kembla Grange. Our facilities at Kembla are quite good. They could be better. But they're, they're, uh, plenty of good horses come out of Kembla Grange. Uh, yeah, you only got to look at what Kerry Parker's got in his backyard at the moment. Yeah, no doubt. And, and how do you guys sort of split up the, the workload? I saw you at um, Hawkesbury a couple of Sundays ago and, and Luke got the Sapphire Coast shift. How do you guys split up who goes where and who does what? Yeah, well, Luke never got the Sapphire Coast shift. We sent one of our... Oh, OK, you got out of that one. But, yeah, we sort of need one of us at home. I think it's important that one of us is at home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think we try and do it. Look, Luke, Luke does all the programming now, and it's um, that puts a bit of pressure on him, and the, and the booking the jockeys, that puts the pressure on him. So I don't mind jumping on a truck and going to places. Um, uh, it's uh, probably easy enough for me to do that. It's a bit harder now. I'm getting older to do the morning shift, then jump on a truck and drive, but... I'll continue doing that as long as I can. But, um, no, we split the work pretty good. Like, uh, I, I do more than my share, more than what I have to do, really, because he's a good... Um, he knows how to um, delegate the work pretty good amongst the staff. Like most stables, we're short of staff, and we tend to overwork our people, but the, the base of our staff are extremely good. Mm. So that was one of my next questions, actually. What's the, the biggest challenges you, you face now as a trainer? Is it staffing issues? I think the industry in a whole faces an enormous problem staff-wise going forward. I, I, like I touched on before, we've got a, a different generation of younger people coming through and to get them sort of hard yards and hours out of them is going to be difficult to do as time goes on. We've done it so far that, um, look, I just think we race every day of the week, Anthony, and it's just got to saturation point in regards to staffing. I don't know where we go from here. Mm. You're a great supporter of country racing as well. It's nothing for you to get in the truck and take one to, say, Wagga or Sapphire Coast. It's, been, it's become really competitive. It's such a tough industry to win anywhere. During your time, how much has it changed in terms of the quality of horse you need to win a race these days, say, if you take one to the Sapphire Coast or, or Wagga? Yeah, you really need a provincial horse. You need a horse that's racing consistently just in behind the place getters in the provincial to be winning at them places. Mm. And, you know, you need a horse that's going, to be tra- that's going to travel good too. You know, it's a long day. It's just under six hours, the Sapphire case from Kemmler Grange. So, you know, you need a horse that's going to stand on the truck and be relaxed at the same time. They could get in there and they've run their race in the truck. But um, it certainly got harder and everyone's, you know, buying for a piece of the pie, so to speak. And um, it's not as easy as it used to be, that's for sure. 
I want to ask about a couple of your stable stars. Count de Rupee, $145,000 yearling. He went on to win $2.6 million in prize money, including the gong in 2021. And Archidemus is several lengths clear from Dawn Passage giving chase at shades of last year. Archidemus from Dawn Passage, but Count de Rupee is descending on them quickly. And Count de Rupee takes the lead now in the gong of the 150. Nudges running home to second. And then came Yamazaki. But it's a local victory. Captain Rupi for Brock Ryan. Won it by two lengths to nudge. Yamazaki third, Burdebeck fourth. What sort of memories Blue does that bring back, Rob? Oh, yeah, look, it seems so surreal, you know, like um, one minute you've got him and next minute you haven't. Mm. A horse, is, oh, a horse like him, very hard to replace. You know, like we're hoping that was his first start over that distance and we're hoping that, you know, his next prep we're going to, plan out a mile 2000 type preparation for him and probably you know all going well would have won just as much if not more again but um yeah you're not to know and you know uh, i suppose it's a bit of pill to swallow but at the same time um, we enjoyed him while he was there and you know at least we had him could you have imagined he'd get to those sort of heights winning two and a half million in prize money i was doing my research yesterday i, I looked back at his maiden run at kembler on august 2020 i called that race he ran second could you have imagined he'd get to the heights that he did? Did he always show you that sort of promise? 100%. I sent him trial one day. Brock rode him in a trial at Kenwood Grange. Might have even been a jump out, but um, I've never seen a horse go so easy. Didn't matter what the opposition was. You know, he just worked home a nice third or something like that. But I've never seen a horse gallop so easy. Like, it's like he's cantering alongside horses galloping and ridden along. Like, I think we knew from that early stage, and I think most of them you do, I think Jumea was the same, you know, from an early stage, we knew she was going to make it. So, um, yeah, you can, you can identify him pretty quick. Three weeks prior to that gong win, he ran second in a Golden Eagle to I'm Thunderstruck, beaten half ahead, and still to this day looked the winner at the top of the straight. How much did that sting? Did it take you? I mean, it probably took you three weeks to get over it because he won the gong three weeks later. No, not really. It was exciting. It was so exciting. And, you know, I'm Thunderstruck at the advantage of the run over the mile before the Golden Eagle, where we were, you know, our first crack at the mile, and um, probably that was the difference, and probably the leader didn't quite take us into the race as far as we were hoping, but 1.5 million to run second, like, mm. I'm not going to complain, no. <laughs> but I, I've got to admit, I went the early crow that day, and I'll try not to do that in future. I think most of us did as well. Now, did you guys end up buying um, his half-sister, a, a filly by Dunn Deal? That's correct. She's in the paddock down here at the moment. She's a lovely filly. She really is. Um, shows a lot of similar attributes as himself. Um, you know, fingers crossed, the owners that um, he, she's near as good. Near as good will be fine with me. Yeah. But um, yeah, she's a lovely filly. So she's about to turn three. Has she been named, Rob? Yeah, she's called Madame de Rupi. Madame de Rupi, okay. We were hoping for Countess, but that was disallowed, so we got Madame de Rupi. Fair enough. Um, another horse you had going really well around that same era. It seems as though, you know, when it rains, it pours. You not only had one good horse, you had two. Jamea, $130,000 yearling purchase. She went on to win over a million dollars. She's still going, not finished with her yet, but her highlight was that $1 million Percy Sykes for two-year-olds with Tommy Berry. And a very fine red. Clark about to pop the cork. Crystal bound a half length away. Running into it nicely as testimonial. Getting past Najmati. Further back to Yearning Joyous Legend at the 250. 
50. Crystal Bound went to a very fine red. Only a head in it. Then came Jamea. Joyous Legend the outside. Yearning getting a late split. It's Crystal Bound in front of Jamea. Jamea surging past. And Jamea in an upset wins the Percy Sykes. Beat Crystal Bound. Photo for third. Joyous Legend wide out with a very fine red. She's been a great filly for you, Rob. I note she's, uh, she's active. She's back in work on, on Riser. How far away is she? Well, we've decided to retire her. Oh, you have? Um, yeah, she had a little bit of a, a niggling hind fetlock, which we, um, look, we were concerned about it, but never really worried it much. But she's too valuable, um, yep. Anthony. And, you know, um, to ensure those sort of animals, like she's valued in the million. Yep. So, you know, to ensure them animals, it's so expensive. And, she's, you know, she's worth so much as a broodmare. We um, took the pressure valve off ourselves and decided to retire her. And, um, yeah, she's going to go on to English Digital as um, soon as all the uh, big, big um, spenders get back from um, England. Yep. She, she'll be on that digital uh, platform and hopefully they get the right money for her. She's been a, she was a beautiful filly for us and she's a lovely mare and, um, yeah, like she'll make a really good brood mare. When was that sure. decision made? Um, it was, was made that last, recently? Last, yeah, last Thursday we'd done the scan. There you go. Um, and, yeah, look, there's not a whole heap of damage there, but, we just don't want to risk her. She's too valuable, and um, you know, like, um, yeah, you could race on, but like, she's just too valuable. So. She'll she'll sell very well. I'd imagine you'll get uh, quite a bit back for your 130, as you you got her for a yearling. She'll sell very well, you'd imagine. Yeah. So we had a lot of fun with her. Like, I I think when she won the Furious Stakes, and the point of the corner, we could see a loop in the rain, and uh, both Luke and I thought, gee, she's gone. Yeah. You know, under Brock's riding, she picked up and. It was an incredible finish that day, and um, stood the hair up on the back of my neck. Um, I had a similar win with Ivory Pegasus one day at Ramwick over a similar trip, and yeah, it's certainly exciting when they win like that. What about another old horse I wanted to ask about, Cuban Royale? He just went to a, a new level last preparation. He's, he's rising nine. He's earned over $700,000 in prize money. Was it just a maturity thing with him that he was able to take that next step and become a listed winner last prep? Yeah, well, early days, he was a bit of a slow learner. You know, he just, um, 10 starts before he really, you know, worked out that he could win a race. And, but he um, he had things go his way, this prep, which he needs to. We were coming back and striking wet tracks or we're drawing bad gates around Rose Hill. Hard to win races. Monumental disadvantage to draw them wide gates around Rose Hill. And, you know, things just weren't going his way. But this prep, he come back and kicked off at Kembla. Um, you know, it's a real good fair track, Kembla Grange. And everything just fell into place for him, you know. We ended up winning a Carrington Stakes. So, mm. you know, it just was a super, super good prep. He's back in work. He's just come back in the last few days. So we're, um, he's a lovely horse to have in the stables and, and he's lovely and sound and he's a bit like Red Ivory. He's very durable and very tough. Yeah, no doubt. Ten-time winner, 64 starts. He's rising nine. He's been placed 15 other times and, as I said, 700000 in prize money. Great for Jan and Keith Meadows as well, predominantly hobby breeders, long-term clients of yours. And to get a horse like him, that's, that's a really a dream for them. Oh, 100%, you know, and they deserve it too. You know, there's mm. probably more pitfalls in breeding them than there is in training them. And, um, yeah, to get a nice horse like him, which, and they've still got the broodmare and um, she's doing a great job and they've got the sister that's a broodmare now too. So, yeah, the, the family goes pretty good and they'll have a bit of fun with them. I've got a, um, a question here from one of our listeners on the text line, Rob. Anthony, can you ask Rob if he's excited about Lemia Stray's first filly out of Kermadec coming into the stable? Lemia Stray was a pretty good uh, mare or filly herself early days, and you've got the Kermadec filly. How's she coming along? Yeah, pretty good. She's at the breakers at the moment. She's um, been at the breakers for about 10 days. Lovely filly. Just looks like a mother, and I'm, I'm a great advocate for Kermadec. I've loved him since um, he was a racehorse. 
Um, I loved him as a yearling, actually. I seen him at the sale. So he's um, Theophilos. You don't see a lot of um, them around, but um, you mix that with the speed that um, that mare has. I can see that mare in the paddock now, just standing there. She's having a good day with the sun on her back. She's back in fold to Kermadec the mare, but the, the filly's at the breakers, and we'll know more in the upcoming you know months on what we think of her when we put a saddle on her and get her around Kemble Grange. Yep. Just before I let you go, a couple more questions. What do you think's the the best thing to change in racing during your time over the last, well, over 30 years? Oh, well, I think we've been very fortunate that we got our Poly Pro tracks in. I I really think the last two years we would have been in a whole pile of trouble trying to get, you know, to get the races with horses fit enough to race. Like, um, there was months there where we could only use the Poly Pro. I think it's been a... uh, it's been a game changer in regards to keep, keeping your horses fit through those wet months. Mm. And, um, you know, going forward, I know in time we're going to have to uh, replace them and do them up, but uh, um, it's certainly been a game changer. How's the current economy affected your business in terms of horse sales? Obviously, interest rates go up. Uh, the middle and lower income earners re- really feel the pressure. How have you felt it from a, from a business point of view in terms of horse sales? Have you been as active as, as what you would have been in the past? Yeah, 100%. I think we have. I don't think it's changed a okay. lot. A lot of people go in with small shares these days, and as everyone knows, the initial capital is always the expensive part. I think the ongoing cost with a small share probably doesn't mean a lot mm. to most people. So I don't think it's going to affect us. We took on a lot of punters groups during COVID, and they've bought shares in horses or they're syndicated into horses. And, um, yeah, I, I think um, it's quite affordable, really. Mm. So I understand a racehorse is quite affordable. So... Like I say, the initial capital out of the way, um, yeah, it hasn't really affected us at all, really. You know, the overheads in racing, uh, you know, are there to be seen. And, and um, yeah, I know our prize money is good, but the overheads are extremely expensive to mm. keep in touch. Yep. You wouldn't want to be going long periods of time without training winners, that's for sure. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and in terms of your season with um, yourself and, and Luke, uh, how's it been and what were your goals at the start of the season? And we're only six weeks away from a, from a new season. Do you reassess heading into that new season? Well, we've put a lot of young horses in. We're a big bunch of three-year-olds, and none of them are going to be two-year-olds. Mm. Um, our big hope is that some of them turn up. We weren't as active this year at the sales. We, I think we only got a handful. Um, but... Um, Oh, look, fingers crossed one turns up because Luke and I both think we've only had an average season. We um, always like to aim high. We kicked off with like six or seven city winners in the first half of the season and struggled to, you know, continue to do that throughout the season. So we're a bit disappointed in that. But we have got some lovely three-year-olds around us. So fingers crossed one turns up and notoriously one does. And um, that's the old adage, just keep doing everything the same and, Hope one turns up. And just one more before we let you go from a listener. Uh, I think this is more out of frustration than anything. Rob, will Verbeck ever learn to run straight? <laughs> <laughs> well, the silly part is he runs straight at home. He just likes to run in on race day. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I don't know whether he will actually to answer that question. Zelly. It was very frustrating. Yep, no doubt. Yeah. Rob Price, it's, it's been a, a great pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Anytime, all the best, Anthony. Thanks, Rob. Rob Price, this week's Monday's expert.